Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. That woman's name is Rosaria Butterfield. And she wrote a book uh, some years ago about how over the course of years spending time with a couple of neighbors opened her eyes to the glory and, and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And it became more beautiful than anything else that she had ever experienced. And she tells the story about how she left a lifestyle that didn't honor God and, and a mindset that didn't honor God and some choices that didn't honor God and how she began uh, to follow God. And, and she wrote that book. Um, I don't know if you showed a picture there at the end of it. It's called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it just came out this year and I'd highly recommend it to you. I'm in the middle of reading it right now. Um, and it just talks about how hospitality, how the table um, and sitting around the table uh, allows us um, as neighbors to be able to have conversations that we wouldn't be able to have otherwise. And, and that's my hope tonight uh, in our last time together. I wanted to you to hear from somebody else so that you wouldn't think I was crazy um, in the things that I'm about to say. Um, no, no. But uh, I am excited. Uh, this has been a blessing. I want to say thank you to you guys uh, for, for how, how much uh, you have just been open and, and receptive to, to, not to me, but to God's word and the truths that are laid out in it. Um, I do hope and pray that, that our time of study over these last few days will do nothing but fuel the fire of this church and, and of you individually to pursue the gospel in every aspect of your life. Um, and tonight we look at our last uh, section, the gospel and your neighbors, how Jesus changes the world around you. So before we look at God's word tonight, let me uh, pray for us and then we'll uh, get into it. Lord God, I do pray, God, that you would use this time uh, to help us learn that truth that uh, Rosaria discussed there of how opening our homes, opening ourselves and our lives to un- unbelievers, to non-Christians, just opening our lives to them gives us an opportunity to impart and share the love of Christ, Lord. And God, that it, it's not this high-pressure situation, it's not this formal, rigid thing, but it comes through relationship and it comes through friendship, Lord. And so God, I pray, Lord, as I preach your word tonight, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, that you would show us how you would have us to follow the lead of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. On June 26th, 2015, the Supreme Court announces that all Americans, no matter their gender or sexual orientation, have the right to legally marry. Two days later, the state of Oklahoma orders the Ten Commandments be removed from the state capitol. These events are shortly followed by bathroom debates that lasted for the better part of a year. Packed on top of that is increasing racial divisions fueled by the shooting deaths of Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, and Tamir Rice. And it is all capped off by an explosive and a divisive election causing Christians to take to social media and their local watering holes to discuss their horror, their hate, their outrage with both sides of the aisle. With every post and comment in a non-Christian watching world, it becomes increasingly apparent that Christians think this nation is going to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. 
And who's to blame? Who's to blame for all these problems we are facing? By and large, from Christians, the answer rang forth. It's all of them. Now let's stop. Before we wade through that minefield this evening, I want to rewind us to the beginning of the Christian church. Shortly after biblical times, when the gospel church began, it was a small group formed out of the Jewish faith. At that time, Rome ruled the world and pagan practices were the norm. Most civilized people worshipped Zeus, Apollo, Aphrodite, and other gods. Drunkenness and festivals were common in day-to-day life. Women and slaves were viewed as secondary citizens and at such an extreme level that a Greek statesman once remarked, we keep prostitutes for pleasure, we keep young female slaves for the day-to-day needs of the body, we keep wives for the begetting of children and for the faithful guardianship of our homes. So long as a man supported his wife and family, there was no shame whatsoever in extramarital affairs. And the outcome? Well, many Christians found themselves persecuted and tortured for their strange beliefs and for welcoming slaves, for treating women as equals, and demanding husbands treat their their wives with respect and fidelity. What's more is that Christian funds were often used to buy the freedom of Christian slaves. When Roman fathers would leave unwanted children in fields to die, the Christians would adopt the children and defy the social structure by caring for them. They lived countercultural and showed love, grace, and affection toward those with different beliefs. This is probably seen best when multiple plagues struck Rome in 165 AD and later from 251 to 266 AD. At the what became known as the plague of Cyprian, it was estimated that some 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome. Because of this, many Romans fled the city thinking that they had angered their gods. Most of the nobles and doctors and statesmen and priests ran from the city in hordes, leaving the people, the commoners, to suffer. But... Instead of fear and self-preservation, the Christians ran toward the city, going to the poor, the sick, and dying at great risk to their own lives. And what they understood was simple. Because of the great love that had been shown to them by Jesus, they were compelled to go and love others, even if it meant risking death. Once the plague hit Alexandria, the Christians there risked their lives by performing simple deeds of washing the sick, offering food and water, and consoling the dying. The Roman Empire had even tried to emulate this model but failed miserably. Why? Because for Christians, this service was not out of duty, but it was out of love. The Romans began to marvel and often whispered to themselves in the street, look how they love one another. Not surprisingly, Christianity rapidly spread. Friends, I don't mean to simplify Christians of the past and Christians today, but I don't think it takes a genius to see that there's a difference. And it's a difference that goes beyond simple evangelism 
simple outreach. It goes beyond handing out tracts and inviting people to a Bible study. It goes to the heart. And that's what I want to spend our last time together this evening talking about. So far, we've looked at spheres where maybe you, as a Christian, have felt pretty comfortable thinking about yourself, your family, your co-workers, your church even. At least you have a reason to build relationships with those people. But now, I want to stretch us a little bit. I want us to ask the question that will cause us to move. That will cause us to cross some barriers. And the question is this. How does the gospel change the way that I engage my neighbors? How does the gospel change the way I engage the people sitting in the desk next to me? How does the gospel change the way the people who just moved in across the street and dress differently, look differently, listen to different music, eat different food, parent differently, and altogether think differently about this world? How does the gospel change that relationship? Or to make it personal, how does the gospel change the way you live life in your own little world? And what I want us to see this evening is that the model of those early Christians was not new. It was not novel. It was not some original idea. It wasn't like they were at some small group and a guy stood up and said, hey, you know all those people dying from the plague? Maybe we should go help them out. No, that's not what happened. The call to engage the world around us is actually a God-given, God-ordained, and God-blessed call that is found in all of the Bible. And when I say all, I mean all. After all, it wasn't it given to Adam and Eve be a blessing to the world around them. But perhaps the most clear example of this is actually found in the book of Jeremiah that I want us to look at tonight. So grab a Bible and turn with me to Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14, or feel free to follow along on the screen. I'm going to read the whole passage, though I'm not necessarily going to preach it all. Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. This is God's word. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, I got to get that right, Jeconiah, yes, and the queen mother the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Jemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And this is what the letter said. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent to exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, 
When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. And when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. This is God's word this evening, friends. And as we explore this passage tonight, maybe you're wondering, what does this have to do with me and what in the world does this have to do with Jesus or the gospel I mean he ain't even mentioned in this passage but what I want us to see is that God's call here to his people during a time of exile both shown more clearly in Jesus and it gives us a biblical model as Christians for how to love our neighbors for how to love the city for how to love the people around us. And we see this in three different parts of this passage. So three points for us tonight, three calls from this passage. Settle down, seek shalom, and stand firm. First, settle down. The passage, if you look back at it, it says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Now, if you don't know the context of this passage, it might be hard to see what the big problem here is. I mean, you read that and you're like, okay, why not? Isn't that what everyone would have been doing if they moved to a new place? Like, don't you move to a new place and you just kind of get involved in the culture? But what we learn from Jeremiah and the other prophets here is that God's people who had been living in Jerusalem did not go to Babylon by choice. It wasn't something that they desired. Instead, God's word tells us that they were captured by Babylon, that they became exiles, they were being forced to move into a new culture. And when we say new culture, we mean totally different foreign and scary culture. And I think it's hard for us to imagine the differences that they would have experienced in, the, in this new culture. I mean, it's not as if like we as Americans moved to another country like China or Brazil where they would dress differently or eat differently or speak a different language than we do. It goes far beyond that. I mean, that this, this Israelites theology, okay, that what the Israelites believed about God, they're understanding about God. Remember the first commandment? You shall have no other gods before me. That understanding was now going to be confronted in a way they had never experienced. They were taken out of their home place and taken to a new land by force in a culture in a city that, that where their daily walk, they would walk by hundreds and hundreds of different idols and different gods that were being worshipped by the people there. So what would your natural response be when you found yourself in a land where people thought totally differently than you did, not just about life, but about God himself? I think for a lot of us, our natural response is to run and hide. To separate ourselves from those people and to avoid them altogether. Yes, that's of course what we would do. And God knew that. 
God knew that that's what they would do. And so he comes right at them. He gets right at me. He calls them out to do something special here. He calls them to do what? To invest. To put down roots. To settle in. Look at the things he tells them to focus on. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. There's three different aspects here that he hits on. He talks about buildings and and infrastructure and and dwelling places. And then he talks about this this idea of agriculture, of growing, of providing food, of of tilling the land. And and then he even moves to these social relationships and and family investment with this this long-term generational mindset. And what is the underlying message that he's calling them to here? Well, we see in that last phrase, multiply there and do not decrease. And I think that goes beyond the population. He's speaking to their very lives. That their life should be one of multiplication, one of blessing, one of increase there. God's expectation here for his people is that they would do what? That they would flourish, that they would grow in every way, that they would be invested and that they would be active within their city. And friends, do you suppose that that call has changed for us today as a New Testament Christian? That God's expectation for his people here is that they would flourish. Has that changed for us? Well, I would say as a culture, not just Christians, but as a culture on the whole, that we've stopped believing this. Whether it's clubs, civic associations, buying homes, signing contracts and leases, as a whole... Our society today is becoming more and more disassociated with community from the group mentality that was so pervasive generations ago. Sociologist Robert Putnam explored this in his 2001 book, Bowling Alone. Putnam discusses how bowling leagues have declined since the mid-20th century. Any of you ever a part of a bowling league? Are you still a part of a bowling league? No. Point proven. Or once you found these vibrant groups of men and women coming together to enjoy the game and enjoy one another, now you often find people bowling alone. As a society, we've went from being front porch sitters to back porch hiders. We pull in our garage, shut the doors, and we never have to see our neighbors. The run and hide from community mentality, the run from cultural engagement mentality covers our culture, covers our society. We fill our schedules up so much that we struggle to have these deep and long-lasting relationships with one another. And we we think things like this. I, I put some examples, things we think. We won't live in this house very long. We won't they they won't live here very long. They'll think we're weird. We have nothing in common. I don't have time to add one more thing. And they don't have time to hang with us. But friends, what God calls us to here in his word is something radically different. He calls for us to settle in, to settle down, and to put down roots. Now I realize for many of us that's not a lofty goal, especially for those of us who grow up in more rural rural areas. We are more likely to stay in a place for a longer amount of time. But friends, whether we realize it or not, the culture around us is changing. 
50 years from now, this so-called Bible belt that we live in is going to have to start making some new notches because it's going to be really skinny. Do you hear what I'm saying? The Bible belt is shrinking. 50 years from now, it's not going to be like it is. Our culture is changing. There are generations now that are being raised completely and totally outside, not just of the local church, but outside of a local, I'm sorry, outside of a biblical worldview. The Christian culture that we've assumed for so many generations is shrinking. Where once we could assume that someone had a, a basic understanding of the Bible and of God, more often now we find that the general public is either uneducated or badly misinformed because they watch too much of the History Channel. And here, God steps in. God steps in, not with a new plan, but the same one that he's had since the days of Jeremiah. Friends, God is calling us to invest, to build friendships with our neighbors, with our neighborhoods. One of the ways that Megan and I have seen the fruit of this is the neighborhood group that we've uh, recently become a part of. As we've been able to go to these neighborhood meetings, we've only not only learned who our, our neighbors are, but we've heard about the bigger needs in the neighborhood in which we live. Now, that, that's really helpful for a local church, to know the needs of the neighborhood in which the church is located. We've learned about the fears and the excitements of people in our neighborhood. And really, we see it as a, as a God-ordained means for building relationships, for investing, and for setting in. And friends, that's not something special to the pastor and his wife. That doesn't take anything. We don't have to have some degree or some high biblical understanding or, or understand all of these things. We just go and sit and listen. Anybody can do that. Any one of you can do that. Friends, as we move to the second point, we must ask why. Why would God want his people, his special possession, those who are, in Jeremiah at least, are here or who are in exile because of their disobedience to him, why would he want them to invest in these pagan people, these people who are so different than them, who are so rebellious against God? Why would God ever want us to invest in our neighborhoods in our civic organizations, in in our society. And this is what we find in that next phrase in point two, seek shalom. Look at verse seven. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Seek the welfare of the city. I wonder if that's how you view your mission I wonder if that's how you view your calling to seek the welfare of your neighbors. I mean, as I see it, and I really got this from Tim Keller again. He's been so helpful. We have four options for relating to the people around us, to our neighbors. And and here are the four options. One, we despise our neighbors. With this mindset, the Christian relates to the city and to their neighbors as something to hide from. As something we need to get away from. The church huddles Christians together in the warmth and the comfort of Christian community. Where we don't have to worry because everybody thinks the same way we do. And looks the same way we do. And we hide out. Because we despise our neighbors. We're scared of our neighbors. we got to hide out from those cruel cold people outside. Number two. We become our neighbors. In this idea and in 
I need to nuance this a little bit here. And this idea of the church relates as a mirror of the culture. It simply reflects whatever the trends are of the city. The local church tries as much as possible to reach the city by being the city itself. And so that means all of our walls come tumbling down and whatever goes, goes. And we give up on any theological convictions that we may have. And really it takes this call to settle and translate that to we need to become the city. Number three, we use our neighbors. In this model, the church relates as as kind of a space capsule above the city. We're kind of floating up there. And and in our relationships with people, we just come down when we need something from them and we suck it out of them and then we get out really quick. And we use our neighbors for whatever advancement we may need. You know, if we if we need a group of people to help us do this, then we get our neighbors to help us, but we don't actually friends with those people. But number four, it's the biblical model. Hope you guys realize that. We love our neighbors. With this idea, the church is salt and light, as it says in Matthew 5. We bring healing and renewing where there is decay. We preach the gospel in word and embody the gospel in deed. Here, the church takes seriously the responsibility of the people of God to speak, care, and give hope to our neighbors. So I ask you, how do you view the city? How do you view your neighbors? Those people who live next door, across the street, down the road. How do you view those people that you rub shoulders with in your hobbies, in your sports leagues, in your children's sports leagues or hobbies? How do you view your neighbors? Are they people that you despise, that you want to get away from? Are they people that you want to emulate? People you want to use? Or are they people that you love? What's your relationship with them? See, that fourth model of loving the city is exactly what God called his people to here in Babylon. That word that's translated welfare in verse 7 in the translation I read is the Hebrew word shalom. Now, shalom may be a word that some of you are familiar with. Most often it's translated as peace. Peace. It's a good translation, except our idea of Western Americans of peace is far too small. The word shalom in the Bible goes beyond a lack of conflict or a lack of turmoil. It goes beyond the absence of bad things. I think that's the way we think about peace. Peace is when there's nothing bad happening. But the Bible goes beyond nothing bad happening. It actually is the presence of something good. Philosopher Cornelius Plantinga defines it this way, and it's kind of a heady definition, but I think you'll get it. He says, the webbing together, the meeting together, the combining together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. If you didn't understand that, just forget that part. It gets better from here. We call it peace. But it means far more than mere peace of mind or ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. A rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. So God isn't just telling the people here that every time they see a Babylonian, they're supposed to say, peace. That's not what he's saying. He tells them to seek the good, 
to seek the flourishing, to seek the growth, the enrichment of the community around them. And friends, the same goes for us. In the New Testament, we see this with this idea of hospitality. That word that is so often used, as it says in Hebrews 13 too, you you guys may know this verse, where it says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So what does this mean for us? It means that we care for our neighbors. That we care for our neighbors. That we love our neighbors. No matter what they look like. No matter what they smell like. No matter what they say. Or what they do. Or what they like to do on Friday night. Or Saturday night. Or where they're at on Sunday morning. No matter what their job is. What color their skin is. How crazy their children are. We love our neighbors. Do you get the idea? We love our neighbors. Not because we can get something out of them. Not because we see them as projects to evangelize. And I want to make that clear. Your neighbors are not people that you need to get to walk an aisle and make a decision and sign a card. Friends, if they are going to become Christians, that means that we're going to spend all eternity with them. So you better become their friends now. No, as one author recently put it, I love my neighbor because she is mine. Not because she loves me back. I love my neighbor because she is mine. Because she is my neighbor. Not because she loves me back. This means that an essential part of Christianity is about living with your blinds open. Living with your blinds open. We recently moved a few weeks ago. And when we were thinking about what kind of window treatments we were going to put in our new house. Megan and I flirted with the idea of doing nothing, of putting nothing in our windows so that people could always see into our house. And we ended up getting some blinds, but they're kind of sheer. You can still see through them at night. And we did that on purpose because we live in a neighborhood where I can about reach out my top floor window and touch the house next to me. And I want people to see into my life, not our bedrooms. I got you. I got you, girl. Don't you worry. But on our first floor, in the living room and in the dining room and in our kitchen, I want people to see into our lives. I want to live my life with my blinds open. I want my house to have swinging doors. I want every kid in the neighborhood to know that they can come to my house and they can come and take all the food out of my refrigerator and they can hang out with my kids. And even if their parents treat them like junk, they know that there's a house where they're going to be loved and cared for. So what are some practical ways that we do this? And I just want to give you two, and this is not bragging because these are other people's ideas basically that we've just employed. Two examples from our own family. Simple ways of investing in our neighbors. First, we as a family try to as often as we can when the weather allows to go on walks in our neighborhood. You're like, oh my goodness, that's revolutionary. We always go on walks. What are you talking about, Adam? Not only does this get us good exercise, but it allows to, us to meet our neighbors where they're at. So often we'll be out walking and see a neighbor who we haven't met or is new to the neighborhood. And we'll find something in common with them or something that they are doing that, that they have an interest in that, 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 that we also have an interest in. Recently on 
Mother's Day, we were uh, walking to church, and uh, our neighbors who are kind of across the street from us, we haven't met yet. Two older gentlemen um, who have been in a relationship with each other for many years. And on Mother's Day, they were sitting outside selling flowers and uh, plants for, for, for people to come by to give to mothers. And they provided this sweet opportunity to just have a conversation with them. Just a conversation, introducing ourselves for the first time to getting to know them. Wonderful, wonderful opportunities, just getting outside your house, just walking around the neighborhood. I realize some of you don't live in a neighborhood. You may have to try something else. It doesn't mean that we preach the gospel at people every chance that we get, but instead we look for common ground in ways that we can bless them. Opening doors for us to sweep Sweetly and winsomely press the gospel home. Another way that we've tried to invest in our neighbors annually is through what we call the Halloweeny roast. Now, what's the Halloweeny roast, you might ask? Well, the Halloweeny roast is this. On Halloween every year, along with candy, I roll out my grill to the front yard and I grill about 80 hot dogs. Because, I mean, you got these adults coming and they're like, we don't want any more Skittles. And so we're like, okay, have a hot dog. But it also forces people to stop, to have conversations with us. It's just a way to change things up, to take things to the next level. It causes our neighbors out trick-or-treating to say, what are these people doing? And we actually get a chance to have a conversation with them. And you would be surprised at how quickly, because of all the Christian things that, 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 that are involved in that, the conversation quickly can move to how our lives and our love and our time is shaped by Jesus Christ. Those are just two examples of how our family has tried to seek the good, the welfare, and the shalom in our city. There are a thousand other ways, friends. There are a thousand ways. God has given us creative minds. We can figure out ways. But it still begs the question, why are we so hesitant to do it? Why don't we? I mean, if we're creative people, if we know God's called us to do it, why don't we do it? Why are we so hesitant Busyness may be a reason that people come up with. But I think a bigger reason for Christians today is fear. It's fear. And not even fear of what to say, but fear of people who are different than us. We're scared that that, that we're going to be put in a situation with somebody who's so different than us that we're not going to even know how to, we're going to like turn into a statue or something. We're not even going to know what to say or do. Scared that we're going to face people who face things that we may not have answers for, situations that may make us feel uncomfortable. And you know we live in a time where it is a sin to be uncomfortable. And in God's providence, that's exactly where he goes in the rest of this passage. Point three, stand firm. Look back at verses 8 through 14. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And so you may be asking, well, God, what are you saying to us? For thus says the Lord. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promises and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Friends, what is God saying here to his people? God is telling the exiles neither to assimilate, neither neither become the city, nor to separate, to leave the city. But he's calling them to live out their lives as a community seeking the peace of the city while standing firm on the promises of God. He says, seek the peace of this city while standing firm on my promises. The promise that he would sustain them, that he would return for them, that he would bring them rescue, that he knew where they were at and what they were doing, but he also knew where they were going. And he says, stand firm on that truth. Friends, in our own love of the city or lack thereof, This is where it really breaks down. It's easy enough for us to settle down, to put down roots. It's easy enough for us to figure out ways to engage our neighbors for their good. But how do we stay the course? How do we remain faithful? How do we keep from giving up or giving in to the temptations of this world? Essentially, to use the New Testament phrase, how are we to be in the world and not of it? How? And friends, for us, standing firm means standing on the gospel. It is the gospel that compels us and sustains us in loving our neighbors the way God's word commands us to. What do I mean? I mean that first, we must see how Jesus did this perfectly. Think about it. Think about it. Jesus willingly became an exile. He wasn't pushed out of heaven. He willingly moved into our neighborhood, put skin on, got his feet dirty and his hands dirty by choice. He became a willing exile from his glorious home. He relinquished all of his shalom, all of his peace, all of his glory to purchase our own. Jesus sought our good, our welfare, by moving into our neighborhood and making the ultimate sacrifice for our good. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And now, friends, think about this. Now our future state of shalom Our future state of glory, of ultimate peace, is set. The victory is won. Not only does God know the plans he has for us, but we know the plans he has for us. We know where we're going, and we know that this is not home. And so we can love it with abandon. We can invest in this place. We can be risky Christians. It gives us the power and the assurance that we can pursue shalom for others. That we can pursue the good of those around us, ultimately pointing them to the everlasting shalom in Jesus Christ. Friends, in Christ, we can approach our earthly neighbors with hearts ready to serve, 
Because of how much we have been served in the cross. Because we have a secure inheritance in our heavenly home. We need very little. Because we have already been given very much. We require very little. We are not high maintenance people. We require so little because Christ has already given us so much. So we can walk into any situation with any level of discomfort. Knowing that we have assurance in Christ. We can be agents of God's kingdom. The kingdom that comes when we demonstrate our love for God by the way we love those around us. So I close by asking you, not just about your neighbors, but opening up every circle that we've looked at. If you have experienced this new identity-giving love of Jesus Christ, have you been changed by the gospel? How has the gospel changed you? And how has the gospel changed the way you view those around you? Whether it's your family, your church, your coworkers, your job in general, and even those you rub shoulders with in the city. How has the gospel changed you in the way you view those around you? Do you see that Jesus has something to say about every area of your life? Do you see it? Do you see that his gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, but it is the A to Z of the Christian life? That it takes us all the way home. And that every step along the way, Jesus Christ says, it is mine. And I have something to do with that. And I have something to say about that. And I want to transform it. I want to use you in every area of your life. That his grace and mercy poured out on us changes us. And it changes how we approach the world around us. Friends, I ask, where do you need to grow? Where do you want to change? As I pray over us, I ask you to bring those things to God tonight. As we end this time of thinking about the gospel in our life, the gospel in you, take those things to God. And see what he'll do. Because he has amazing things in store for us. He has amazing things in store for each of us. If we allow him to change us by the gospel. So will you join me in prayer as we ask for gospel wisdom. As we go from this time. Lord God, I lift up my friends here to you. God, I lift up myself. God, I pray that you would show us the areas where we need your shaping, your molding, your work in our lives, where we need the gospel, the sweet balm of the gospel applied to our hearts. And that we would find hope, that we would find redemption, that we would find assurance and comfort and courage and all the gifts of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and self-control come upon us by the power of the Spirit, Lord. Would you make it so? Would you make us people that are salt and light in our families, our church, our work, and our neighborhoods? 
Would you change us as we go from this place this evening, Lord? In Jesus' sweet name we do pray. Friends, as we sing one more song, I invite you to spend this time praying individually or or even praying together about how we could reflect more the beauty of Jesus Christ as we've experienced him. Would you stand as we sing? Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.